Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that we've launched our Patreon site and that you can now become a supporter of the show. The awards in there include artist features on our website and shoutouts on the show, as well as open invitations to join fellow patrons in our roundtable discussion episodes. So if you think you might be interested, please take a look at the link in the description or just go to patreon.com slash at percussion. So slash A-T percussion. Okay, thanks for listening. Well, hi everybody, I'm Carly Dina, and this is episode 249 of At Percussion. We're recording this episode on Sunday, August 23rd, and with me today as usual are Casey Cangelosi. Hey Casey. Hey everybody. Ben Charles. Hey Ben. Hey Carly, how are you? Doing all right. How's it going, Ben? It's going well. Uh, we had our first two days of school this past week, so everything's wow. so good so far. <laughs> so far, so good. And Ksenia Kumjanovic is here as well. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing, Carly? I'm doing all right. Um, so our release date for this episode is September 17th. What happened on this day in music history, Ksenia? So I did two little segments because I think Casey owns this section, but sure, I'll tell you what happened on September yeah, good 17th. Luck. Good yeah, luck. yeah. People will give Try. me a thumbs down. We're going to lose the podcast because I said something. This better be hilarious. <laughs> um, it will be hilarious, but okay, 1955, September 17, Capitol Records released Magic Melody Part 2. And it is the lick that you know is dum da 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 dum Bum, bum. But they couldn't fit the last two notes on Magic Melody Part 1, so they released it as such without the tonic, you know, without the resolution. So the DJs went crazy and they were like, what's going on? Can we have the second part? And they released literally a single second record. And that was the, the shortest record of all time. Um, what? For the, for the, for, for Doe? Just, yes, yes, yes. Well, T-Doe, yeah. Oh. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Um, says it's, uh, the song consisted only of the last two notes of the musical phrase, shaven a haircut, two bits. <laughs> so right. that, was, that was good. You know, wrap it up, wrap it up. Even if you're late, it's better to be there than, you know, to skip out. Um, wow. <laughs> 1991, a huge, very important thing in all of our lives happened, which is that Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 by Guns N' Roses was released. I mean, that's the albums that I pray to at night. Which one's better, 1 or 2? I never listened to them separately, honestly. What? You know, because okay. I'm a kid that, like, used MP3s at home. I didn't even know where they came from. They came in a bundle. What do you, you think? So you didn't have them on CD? No. Okay, I had them on CD. I had Sounds them on the CDs. CDs used to be sold in like boxes. I don't know if you're old. Anyone's old enough here for that? Are you old enough for that, Joe? Do you remember? Yeah, Joe. You, yeah. No, no. Casey, you're the oldest. You're fucking vinyl here. <laughs> okay. What's a okay. CD? Well, CDs came in these cool boxes. Like there was the CD, which was in the traditional like CD case we're used to. But then there was this long box extended, and yeah, those two Guns N' Roses albums came on those. The answer is two, by the way. That's the better of the of them. But yeah. Well, there you go. You're you're way smarter than I am. I we'll take your recommendation. You know the rep. Yeah. And then lastly, in 2003, David Lee Roth injured himself while doing a very fast, complicated 15th century samurai move on stage. 
he needed 21 stitches when a staff uh, he was using hit him in the face. Uh, a few days later, the remainder of his tour was canceled. So, I mean, I'm in my concerts all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've noticed these. I've noticed these news segments are less classically oriented now that I've handed them off to everybody. Yeah, man, we got to talk about the real important people. You know, the real important stuff. Last week, I got Ksenia to sing the Fresh Prince of Bel Air theme song. Exactly, exactly. I might and take to do this it back. Poorly. Yeah, oh, that's great. <laughs> take it, take it. But I wanted to make this uh, a little bit uh, different uh, for the icebreakers. So I chose to maybe do something called um, I don't know. Let's let's say world's best, world's worst. And I found uh, the world's worst album. Now, I don't know if you folks can he have heard of the Shags. Does anyone know of this band? No? Just from you. Just from us. me? Yeah. Um, I'll play a little snippet after this, but basically. So the band is primarily notable today for their perceived ineptitude at playing conventional rock music. The band was described by Rolling Stone magazine as sounding like lobotomized trap family singers. <laughs> Um, basically, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's insane. The, the beginning of this band, which all of them were kids, by the way, um, it came from Austin Wiggins' mother. So Austin Wiggins is just a person, a parent. And when he was little, his mother, who used to predict things and do palm reading, said that he would marry a strawberry blonde woman, have two daughters with her, that she is going to pass away after that and that these daughters are gonna form a very famous rock band. So because the first two things actually happened, he pulled his daughters from school, bought them cheap instruments, the three of them, um, a lead guitar, a rhythm guitar and a drum set, and made them sit and practice and eventually pulled them into a studio to record an album. When the engineer in there heard them. When the producer heard them, he was like, I don't think they're ready. And he was like, no, 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 get them while they're hot. Get them while they're hot. <laughs> the prophecy, they're ready. The prophecy, the prophecy. they're ready. <laughs> it can't be wrong. So, wow. I mean, they published about a thousand albums, 900 of them got lost, a hundred somehow floated around. In the seventies, Frank Zappa pulls this up in one of Dr. Demento's radio shows and plays some of his favorite songs, saying that this is the, you know, just revolutionary. And Kurt Cobain ranked this album uh, named Philosophy of the World as number five of his best 50 album list. Cool. Um, so I'll play you a little snippet of this. It's absolutely crazy. I listened to the whole album and I suggest that you do the same. And I dare you to do a transcription of this if you can. Try to play us like five seconds so we don't get flat. I like it already. You do? Isn't it? It's beautiful. Let me see. Is it sharing computer sound? Okay. You can never be anybody in this world. <laughs> that was enough. That was... That's incredible. Thank you very much. Next. <laughs> it's still better than Hanson. Better than Nickelback. Don't, don't Nickelback. hate on Hanson, Casey. Yeah, it's still better than Nickelback or Hanson or Limp Bizkit. Now, can we hear you do a little sight reading now, please? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's see who's going to do better. Casey, what you got? <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. We should introduce Joe first before we, we, we see someone sight read some Tompkins. Casenia, <laughs> that's awesome. Thanks. That was great. It, it's kind of a hidden gem. And I, I have to say, when, I, when I, I clicked the link and I listened to the beginning, I thought there was something wrong with my computer. It was like, is it like something, something wrong is happening? The album cover is great, too. It's like a floor tom sort of way off to the left. 
And a hi-hat way off to the right. And hair everywhere. <laughs> That's why they're called the shags, you know? That's because of the hair. <laughs> there it is. Well, without further ado, our guest today is the illustrious Joe Tompkins. Joe has played with the New York Philharmonic, with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, with the Cleveland Orchestra, and also the New York City Ballet Orchestra, among many others. He's performed in 23 productions on Broadway. He has recorded soundtracks for a number of major films. And of course, he's composed many internationally recognized works for percussion, including the three volumes now of the French-American rudimental solos for snare drum that we all know and love. Um, he's been commissioned by the percussion sections of the New York Philharmonic, the Cleveland Orchestra, and the Atlanta Symphony, and also serves as the area coordinator of the percussion department at Rutgers University. Um, so welcome to the show, Joe. It's so great to have you on. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I, I thought we'd start by talking about this new volume three, the French-American rudimental solos, because I'm excited about it, and I think so many people in the percussion world are. Um, what... What was the inspiration behind these books and what's new in volume three? Well, the books um, originated from Guy Lefebvre's Superior Technique for Snare Drum, which is a French text that was published in 1987. Guy Lefebvre was um, a member of the Air Force Band in Paris for many decades. And I came upon this book, Superior Technique for Snare Drum through Mark Demoakis who is now the principal percussionist of the Cleveland Orchestra, we were playing together before he was appointed in Cleveland. We were playing in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And we were, I think it was Mahler, and we were stuck in a Holiday Inn for like a week. Um, nothing to do but practice on a pad. And he had this book, and I said, do you mind if I borrow that book? Because I was basically bored. And um, started looking through this Lefebvre text, and I realized that there were a lot of ideas in there that I had never really seen in the, in the American rudimental vocabulary. So that was 2003. And it took me about three years to process the information that I found in that, in that book. And volume one came out in 2006. I really didn't intend to write a volume of French American solos, but Mark um, I was passing him some ideas and I threw him a few drafts and he said, you know, you got to put together a collection. So I thought maybe nine and it took three years to complete the first volume. So that was how it got started. Um, between that volume and the second volume, there was a five year gap. And so 2011, I wrote the second volume. I really didn't, did not want to repeat the information that I was, you know, um, putting out there in the first volume. So it took five years to, um, create something fresh. And actually, Carly, that's where we were at Interlochen in that year in 2011. And Carly remembers, <laughs> I was basically always practicing these solos in, in my studio. Always. <laughs> always. Uh, and I was trying to finish them up, basically. I found out that there was a recording studio at Interlochen that was off in the woods somewhere. And I thought, this is perfect. You know, I can record these things while I'm here. And I was uh, working on one of the solos and I was sort of hitting a wall and Carly came into the practice room and I was like, I don't know what to do. I mean, it just seems like something's not working with this solo. And I played it and you said, well, why don't you make it a rondo? And I was like, oh, wow, that is exactly what this needs. So, <laughs> so one of the solos is a rondo form, thanks to Carly. But then, so that was 2011, that was volume two. Volume three uh, just came out in uh, May, and um, 
I actually took a sabbatical from Rutgers to complete volume three. So it was a much different process because it was fully intentional. It was like, I know I'm going to write this book. It's part of the sabbatical. It took me a, really a year and a half. I started it in uh, 2018, sort of the latter part of 2018. And I basically allowed myself about a month and a half for each solo. And then I would put it away and come back to it to make sure that they were all different and weren't, you know, more of the same. And I was intending to go to Paris uh, in January and April to work on this book in terms of research. The January trip I did make, and there's some interesting stories about that trip, but April was canceled due to the pandemic. It didn't really necessarily affect the, the music, but volume three is based on traditional French marches that date back to 1684. Um, some of them, some of the pieces uh, are originally inspired by marches that were written for King Louis XIV and at Versailles. And I think everybody knows the name, the Philidor brothers. Uh, one of them was the librarian uh, for Versailles as well as the percussionist. I guess he had multiple jobs. And in um, some of the music in volume three is inspired by pieces that he would have been playing on. For example, Jean-Baptiste Lully's uh, opera, Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme. Um, one of the pieces in this volume is inspired by the Turkish march from that opera. So it's, it's really kind of a bizarre source. Um, and it's very different than volume one and volume two in terms of source material. Joe, what's uh, distinctive about the French rudimental style? Because I, I, know, I know nothing about this. You know, and, and I look at, um, like, gosh, we, we had people way back on episode two from, um, gosh, Ben, you remember who these folks were, from uh, Brittany, France, but they're playing Scottish-style drumming, and it's also very influenced from Basel, and, like, the geography and the history is so messy for <laughs> like myself. But really, it's like, wait, why are you playing Scottish music in France, and why is that a right. thing in Brittany and Bagad Cap Caval is like from somewhere else. And it's like, you know, so, so what is it like, how, how do you help us compartmentalize the French rudimental style as opposed to like Basel and Scottish? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a heavy influence from the Swiss. Um, my my uh, hypothetical reasoning is the, um, the proximity, obviously, of, of the two countries. But if you go back and look at the military history of Switzerland and France. Um, there were certain French military campaigns where they actually hired Swiss mercenaries to uh, fight for them in the latter part of the Crusades. And, um, there, and the Swiss carried with them musical, um, a musical component in their armed forces. They were one of the few um, militaries of the time to use drums during battle. So they were fighting for the French and they were bringing with them this distinctive drumming style. I think that, you know, it was it definitely heavily influenced French drumming. Um, this would have been 11, maybe 1300, actually, I think the, the last few crusades, you, you can correct me on that. But um, so in any event, their Swiss drumming and French drumming are connected. Um, the French drumming style that I've become interested in is, is heavily Parisian based. So, um, Really, the father, the, the godfather of this style that I've been studying is Renaud, Alexander Renaud, who was the teacher of Robert Gout and also Guy Lefebvre. 
um, in that order. And so Renault was one of the first people, I think, who wrote music down that was, I mean, most of this was came from an oral tradition, which I think affects the freedom of the style, uh, the complexity of what these regimental groups were doing. And there was a competitive nature to, to the style. So if you look at, for example, if you look at the back of Lefebvre's uh, superior technique, you'll see some pieces by Renault that you would be amazed were being performed in 1925. Uh, it looks like an Elvin, drum, Elvin Jones drum solo that's been transcribed. I mean, it's fairly complex stuff, way, way beyond anything we would see in um, like, you know, the army band manual. Um, so, so the drumming that I've become interested in is really sort of centered around the tambour militaire, which is the, yeah, obviously the military drum. Uh, it's the, um, particularly through the Air Force Band in Paris. It's very specific. Um, one thing that is interesting to me is that in the American tradition, we have a, we have a, a strong tendency to cross-pollinate between rudimental drumming and orchestral drumming and Typically, American percussionists <clears throat> begin by studying rudimental drumming, and then they will take that into their orchestral playing. In the French style, I don't think that's the case. I think they're actually generally considered to be distinct trajectories. Um, so when I've talked to people like Makarez and others uh, about it, it's like, oh, well, that's tambour militaire. It's completely separate. And then you have Casclair. The, the clear drum, the pure drum, which is the orchestral trajectory. So there really is a, it's a very complicated uh, history. Um, and it's not only, not only in this terms of Basel drumming and the drums of Brittany, which I don't know much about, but in terms of um, orchestral drumming and how rudimental uh, traditions in France and, and orchestral traditions really don't relate as much as we would think they do. Yeah, I was just going to say to add to that, that episode that Casey was referring to when we had a couple of these French guys on, I asked something about De La Clouse, like, you know, oh, like how, you know, how was your you know, rudimental, and they were like, nothing. They, they, they just, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's interesting. And even in the, even in the sphere of military drumming in the, the, the tambour military tradition, Guy Lefebvre was considered to be somewhat eccentric because he, I think he pushed the envelope a little bit. He was a drum set player and he tried to apply some of these French rudimental ideas sort of with the, the concepts that you might consider from, from a kit. Um, so he, some things he, he applies feet. And I think it was like, I, there are traditionalists in that system that probably just blew their minds. And for this third volume of, of solos that I just completed, um, the inspiration was Robert Goutte. And I tried to fo focus on his writing. He was, uh, he studied with uh, Alexander Renaud in the 1940s and 50s. And he was, he preceded Guy Lefebvre. Um, it's interesting if you read his texts, and I would highly recommend checking these books out. They're called uh, Tambour de Ordonnance. Um, and there are four volumes. You can get them from a, a company called Resta J Percussion, which is based in France. And he, uh, Gut is very specific with his criticisms of people that he thinks have not upheld the tradition of French drumming. 
um, I mean, he names names and he's like, you know, that's a, this guy's writing a five stroke role. It should be a nine stroke role. I don't know what he's doing. I mean, it's very, you know, they're very opinionated. <laughs> so uh, that was interesting to see. And there's a lot of great texts in these, in these Gut books. I was uh, kind of clued into them by Javier Diaz, who's a faculty colleague of mine at Rutgers. And he has all four volumes and um, it, it was, it was a very similar reaction to what I found with Lefebvre back in 2003. It's like, wow, I hadn't, you know, not seen these kinds of things before. It's about 20 years before Lefebvre, but um, it's just really interesting because uh, the language is just so, so very different, you know. As you speak about all of this, I think it's, it's so interesting because the way that, you know, violinists or pianists study the history of their instrument and the repertoire, and they know so much, I think, especially as students, you know, we, we know Delacluse and Pratt, and we know Tompkins and Peters and, and all these things that are commonly studied, um, but we don't always know, like, where did this tradition come from? What was the original tradition? And so much is adapted along the way. Yeah, and, and you know, going even further back, before these things were actually written down, you're talking about this style probably originated in the Napoleonic era around, let's say, 1804. And the um, highest levels, the Napoleonic, uh, Napoleon's uh, Royal Guard uh, would have been given preference. They were considered to be the elite and uh, one aspect of that was their drum cadences had to be the most complicated. <laughs> so it was like, it was like a DCI competition with, you know, these uh, military units and you could tell who was approaching based on the cadences and the complexity of the cadences. And um, some of that stuff has been written down and it's really interesting to see just how complicated these things going back to the 1800s actually are. Um, you know, very similar to the Fritz Berger things, you know, he was one of the first people to notate Swiss drumming. And I think Renault was probably one of the first to notate French drumming, but the complexity is really outstanding. Um, it's a fantastically wonderful contribution to our art form. And I must say, when I um, first got my hands on your book, I had the chance to take it home to Serbia and to give it to my former university professor there. And he was just blown away how it's, so outstandingly musical uh, in a very new refreshing way. So thank you for that. Um, but I wanted to ask, uh, I, what I've noticed at least um, among young composers is that most of them publish solos, a single solo, sort of like a piece of music for, especially, you know, snare drum and electronics, that's a big thing. Um, but what would your suggestion be for someone who wants to put together, you know, a series of solos or attitudes, how would they go about publishing it? A young person, what should they do? Well, you know, I think we're pretty lucky right now. I mean, I'm not plugging anybody in particular, but Andy Beal at Bakovich is, is very open to publishing um, new music. When I graduated from Manhattan School, I wrote, I wrote a book while I was a graduate student that I approached Ludwig music with. And I don't know if anybody knows the name Frederick Fennell. Frederick Fennell was a band director and his wife, uh, Elizabeth Ludwig Fennell was William F. Ludwig's daughter and Frederick Fennell's wife. Okay. So uh, she ran Ludwig music and I called her 
my first year out of graduate school and it was like talking to like George Steinbrenner. She was so like tough and <laughs> she's like, well, what do you have? And I said, that's a collection of snare drum solos. And she's like, well, why would I want more snare drum solos? You know, it was kind of like, and I said, well, I've got, you know, I, I'll send them to you and you can see if you like them. And, you know, um, she sent me a letter and I think, I think I still have it. And it said, uh, we would like to take you under contract and it was basically like, we own these now and you will get nothing for them. And congratulations, you know, oh, wow. you, you won the jackpot. <laughs> yeah. So it was a, deal? it was a horrible contract and I was so excited because it was like, well, I've been published by Ludwig music, you know? Um, I think it's a lot easier now to find um, a good, a better relationship with a publisher than it was then. <laughs> and if you're a young composer, I mean, I think, what I did was I literally hit the pavement in New York and I went from drum house to drum house. I went to Manny's, I went to Sam Ash, went to drummer's world. And I just took these books with me, you know, and I'll never forget. It was like a July 110 degrees in the shade kind of day. And I went into drummer's world. And if anybody knows the history of that place, Barry Greenspawn was the owner. And uh, I had this book and it was like, Hey, I've, I'd like to sell this, you know? And, um, he was the only person who didn't flat out reject me. He said, okay, I tell you what, give me one of them and I'll put it on the shelf and I'll, I'll sell on consignment. So if I sell it, I'll give you $5. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I was like, this is, this is great. <laughs> so I gave him this book and for the next 20 years, I would go in there and it was a running joke. He would see me coming and he would take the same copy that he never sold and he would slip it behind the other books and he would say, Hey Joe, those books sound like hotcakes, you know? And it was, and then it became, when are you going to buy your yacht? You know, <laughs> now we're like, we're in a completely different place. And I think a, a young composer, first of all, you can self publish, you know, much, much easier than it was before. You can market online. You can put a YouTube video up, and it could become viral within a week. Um, it's a, just a completely different market, but also companies out there are much more receptive. And Abakovich is one of them to, to new titles. Um, and uh, I just think it's a much more uh, friendly climate than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to add one of my favorite stories like that is when Lee Howard Stevens wrote Method of Movement, he couldn't get it published. And he shopped it around everywhere and everyone said, no, it's gotta, it's gotta have stuff about snare drum and timpani and all the other keyboard instruments. And he could not get this thing published. And finally he just said, all right, I'm just gonna start my own publishing company. And that's a very Lee Howard Stevens move. And obviously that worked out well for him. And uh, it's one of the you know premier percussion textbooks out there. But yeah, I'm sure it was very frustrating before the days of easy self-publishing and self-marketing on YouTube and social media, that sort of thing. Absolutely, Mitch Peters did the same thing. It worked out pretty well for him too. Well, it's amazing, like the Blades book, which we cite and use all the time, got discontinued. It's just amazing, like even one of our most popular books to a major publisher, it's like, eh, that's, that's not worth continuing. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. certainly that would still sell in our field. And of course, now Rebecca Kite's picked it up and we, we have it another way, but it's interesting that it, it wasn't kept afloat. Hey, um, you know, speaking of these solos, you guys know they're pretty difficult. I don't know if you've seen this video that surfaced online of me sight reading them. I had to sight read. Uh, this is, I think this is number three. So let's see here. Share computer sound. Can you tell Do us a... what was the occasion? Why did you sight read in public? 
<laughs> oh, let's see. Well, I don't remember. It's a, uh, oh, yeah, it's this house party. Here it is. You can see that cool dude with the hat back there. He's like really into it. He's like, oh man, this is really deep. Was that at, was that at beta this summer? You know, I got, I don't remember. I got hired to play the party. And you wrote, you, you wrote white knuckle stroll right after that, or is it before that? It was a little before. Yeah, right around the same, you know, same era of time. Same idea. <laughs> same Joe, idea. can you give him a grade, please? That was excellent. A plus, fantastic. Yeah. Thanks. The style. Yeah, yeah. This was the swing. You know. I can do better if I practice it, but keeping the the time was yeah. Oh, in the pocket. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> you got us so good. I really thought like you had this video of you sight reading. Tompkins. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I could try. I could sight read for you. It wouldn't be that, that I, interesting, though. That was I will cool. say, I mean, I, I, I had a student, of, a very, very talented student, a uh, high school student in South Florida when I was there. And uh, yeah, one day he brought in, he was like, I, I got this uh, Tompkins book and I had heard of it, but I'd never played it. And I'm sitting there like, oh, yeah, that, uh, yeah, do that one again. Let me <laughs> try <laughs> trying to figure these out as he's playing <laughs> yeah well yeah right sure we've all had those moments right i mean i definitely actually when i teach it uh because there's more material now i if somebody tells me they're bringing something in i have to get it back out and look it over you know oh, sure well while we're still talking about these snare drum solos um joe i wanted to ask you about notation systems for the snare drum because i know you, you use some different systems in this third volume um what do you think is the most natural notation system for snare drum and does it depend on the style um what what works best in your opinion you know what the the notational system for the third volume is right hand there's a single line and the right hand is below the line the left hand's above and essentially that's the Swiss, that's the Swiss system reversed, you know, um, probably the French just did it to piss off the Swiss. I have no idea, but um, it's, it's, it actually, when I was first looking at it, it was like, well, what is this? And then a week later, it literally only took about five or six days. I was like, Oh, I like this. You know um, I don't know that you could really say, one system is the best. I mean, you've obviously got, we've got R's and L's. Uh, we've got closed dots and open dots. And we've got this line thing that goes on with Scottish drumming and Swiss drumming and French drumming. I like this idea that we're eliminating one, in my opinion, one step. When you have the line, it's almost just like a very mild form of graphic notation. You know, you don't have to look for an R or an L. That There's one moment of translation that is removed, I think, from, from the process. And it's a little bit more organic. It takes a, just a second to adjust to it, you know, to process it. But um, I really, I prefer this system now. I just, I, I have a feeling that it's going to be met with a certain amount of resistance. Um, but when I was researching for volume three, I thought if I'm gonna go all in, then I'm gonna use the system that Goot used. And, um, and I think it affects, to me, it affects the way I actually write um, on when I put the pencil down on paper. And it's amazing how quickly you can notate using that system, taking out the R's and the L's and just taking out that one extra step of adding that other vocabulary. Um, 
it flows a lot more quickly, pencil to paper. Can we have your permission to boycott capital and lowercase? Like when there's <laughs> an accent, it's a capital R. Can we? I can't stand that. I don't. We, that's the yeah, one. Yeah, that's very confusing to me. And uh, yes, it's so confusing. You know, there's so many different ways. Obviously, we could do it. Um, I guess that you know, RSNLs out probably what in the early part of the 20th century. Before that, I don't know that they were necessarily used. Um, if you look, go back and look at the Bruce and Emmett military drumming manual. Um, I don't know that that I don't know when we got into the R's and L's thing, but I mean, the, might have been the early 20th century. Yeah, the Pratt book has R's and L's. Yeah, the Pratt book for sure. Late. Yeah, it's pretty late in these in these standards, though, right? I mean, it has probably more to do with printing. Yeah, that'll be like than, 60s. Yeah, I mean, it probably has a yeah. lot to do with typesetting. You know, um, if you go back to like what I think really inspires American drumming is is british drumming obviously um if you go back and look some of the texts from like longman and Broadrip book which was published in the 1700s in london has three camps and all of these things that are that continued all the way through to the american tradition check out that notational system you want to see something totally insanely confusing they, they had no idea how to write a drag and it's like, well, we could put a squiggle over it. Let's put a mordant over it. And then we'll put yeah. a line through it. And then we'll make it a half note. You know, like, I mean, it's like weird things that are totally counterintuitive. Yeah. So notation has been a problem. I think it was a real quandary for a lot of people for a long time. Well, I, I know, um, I don't know about y'all, but it's, it seems to me like I, I haven't thought about this much. I'm kind of just, I'm kind of just winging it here, but it seems like, you know, Scottish system, two lines or two positions. That's great until you're not playing snare drum. And if we're going to teach students this, this some kind of system that's going to translate and it's going to translate to keyboards, it's going to translate to multi-percussion, all of a sudden two lines means something totally different. However, stickings can be preserved right, left, right, left without capitals, damn it. Uh, th that can be preserved on multi-percussion. It can be preserved on drum set. It can be preserved on keyboards and, and all that like it's a common thread timpani yeah i think you're right if you have multiple voices as soon as you have two voices this system that i'm talking about down because you have to go to a staff mm -hmm. otherwise i mean it would it would become very uh laborious i think or almost impossible yeah. it's really just for two hands you know that this one line system for the french or the swiss would work Right, right. I think, yeah, I feel like when we're, I, you can make the same argument with counting, you know, different counting systems. It's like, well, I favor this counting system that I use because it preserves numbers for important beats. And, and that carries through whether you're in 12-8 or in some simple meter, you always have numbers for beats and then the syllables translate down through each subdivision so that when you learn one layer of the system, you're practicing for the next layers. So I kind of wonder if we can think about sticking in the same way. It's like, hey, we're teaching a kid snare drum, but we're not just teaching them snare drum when we introduce sticking. We're also preparing them for other other stuff. Right. And I wonder also if it's, if it's a matter of the level of the student, like maybe the R's and L's are really the best thing until you're at a certain level, mm -hmm. you know, and then you can get into all these other things, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, I do like what you're saying about it all being integrated and organic. I hadn't thought about it that way, but of course, like if you're reading 
R's and L's, then that's something taking your attention away from the notes themselves. And it's a, it's a nice way to think about it. Well, because ultimately we study snare drum not to play snare drum, but to play marimba, right? Yes, that's true, yeah, marimba. I mean, nobody wants to actually. Yeah. That's our goal. Uh-huh. <laughs> Harley, sick Ben on us. Yeah, on that note, Ben has something for us today. Yeah, so we're talking about drums, and so I wanted to talk some more about drums. Uh, and in particular, I went on sort of a, a, a hunt for information about drum heads this week. And in particular, I used quite a bit of the James Blades book that Casey mentioned earlier called Percussion Instruments and Their History. It is quite long-winded, quite difficult to read, so I did my best to condense some information down into a, a reasonable amount here we could go through. So here we go. Um, so it turns out the first quote unquote drums were actually not what I'll call membrane drums like we think of. In fact, the first drums were log drums or slit drums. Is everyone seeing that screen share there? That's actually, uh, it's about seven and a half feet long. That's uh, from the Emil Richards collection in the uh, Rhythm Discovery Center in Indianapolis. So um, James Blades says that the early man discovered that hollowness equals resonance and sounds that could travel great distances could be used to communicate. So this is where the idea of a hollow vessel uh, probably got its beginnings. And then uh, he says that membrane drums are perhaps not one of the oldest musical instruments, like I think we often intuitively think they are. He says they're very difficult to date, especially considering that skins do not stand the test of time. Uh, the wide distribution of these instruments, though, indicates that they might be older than the archaeological evidence suggests. The earliest records we have of membrane drums are from around 3000 BC in Germany, Moravia, and Mesopotamia. They're represented in paintings in Egypt, Assyria, India, and Persia. And Blade says that the origin of the membrane drum is, is uncertain, but it is speculated that it came as an accident. So what James Blades speculates in his book is that they were drying uh, an animal hide over just a large hole in the ground. Um, and someone went up and happened to tap on it and they discovered that it had a resonant quality. And so the earliest drums may have simply been uh, suspended animal skins. And there's actually a modern drum whose name I will butcher the pronunciation of, but I will show it to you here. This drum is called um, an Inconquo, I believe is the uh, correct pronunciation. But as you can see here, it's just, it's literally just a membrane that they're stretching out by hand and beating on with sticks. Um, it's then speculated that the earliest membranes that were stretched across actual vessels came in primitive South Africa. Um, and there's an instrument, I got one more screen share for you here. This instrument is called an entambula. Uh, it's a Swazi instrument and it's simply a goat skin shaved and wetted, not even trimmed into a circle that was temporarily stretched over a clay pot by an assistant while a player beats on it with a reed or a stick. So if you look in the picture, you can see one person holding the skin and the other person actually playing the skin. And Blade says that one person could also play it by kneeling on the skin over the pot. Um, and so Blade says the next step came with what was called necklacing, where they would use a circular cord near the end of the vessel uh, to, to suspend the head. And then after that became pegging and buttoning, uh, which are different ways of basically nailing the head down. With pegging, you actually nail the head down. It's that simple. Uh, buttoning is where you actually create loops in the head and you stretch it over the pegs. 
Uh, it's unclear when second heads came into use. Blade simply states that one of our ingenious ancestors reasoned that two heads might be better one, and that the purpose of the second skin could not have been for tuning as the oldest drums were not tuned. These widespread examples of two skin drums filled with grain indicate that a second skin may have been originally necessi necessitated by the filling, which I didn't quite understand what he meant by that, but it sounds like they might have served some sort of purpose in transporting grain. Not too positive on that. Um, African drumhead materials include, and obviously drums are very prevalent in African music, um, these, uh, their drumhead materials include oxen, sheep, giraffe, zebra, monkey, leopard, gazelle, lizards, bats, elephants, and captured enemies, just to name a few. As time went on, the first flesh hoop and counter hoop drum styles that we, we've come to know today, like a snare drum or a timpani, uh, came around the 16th century, which is also when the term drumhead came into use. And so to prepare a skinhead, the way it's done is there's an inner layer of fat that's removed. The hair is usually removed, although some African drums, they leave the hair on. It may be buried in the ground for several days to loosen the hair and flesh. The skin is then moistened or greased, then pegged out to stretch and even the thickness of it. The skin is then moistened to make it pliable. Then it is affixed to a drum or a hoop. When affixing to a hoop, the skin is cut to size to allow sufficient access to encircle the flesh hoop. And then a tool in the shape of a spoon handle is used to tuck the head under itself around the hoop. Now, if you're listening to those instructions and it sounds kind of complicated, you are, are probably correct on that. And I think that would provide a pretty high uh, barrier of entry into the field of drumming. And so in 1952, there was a guy by the name of Remo Belli, who was the owner of the Drum City store in Hollywood. And he visited the Slingerland Drum Company in Chicago. And the Slingerland Drum Company was experimenting with a film called Mylar that was initially used for weather-resistant film on nighttime military reconnaissance flights. And Slinger didn't really know, excuse me, Slingerland really didn't know what to do with it, but Remo bought some, brought it back to California, and he stapled it to his drum's wooden hoop, and he realized the potential. He then worked with chemist Samuel, uh, excuse me, Samuel Muchnick to develop a process to mass produce it where they would quickly set the, uh, the head, the, the film in resin in an aluminum loop. Um, and by 1957, Remo had perfected and started marketing and manufacturing the first successful artificial drum head. He called it the Weather King Drumhead because of its resistance to changes in weather. It got endorsements from Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich, although perhaps the crowning achievement was when Ringo Starr played these drumheads on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. And an interesting fact, Ringo's drumhead that he played on that 1964 appearance, his bass drumhead, excuse me, the one that says the Beatles on it, sold at auction in 2015 for $2.1 million. And interestingly, I was curious about this and I was correct in my assumptions that actually on the PETA website, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, they actually have a, a section listing various musical instruments and they, they list Remo as one of the people that has helped save animal lives. So that's uh, more than you ever wanted to know about drum hits. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say they list Remo as some big offender, but no, it makes sense. No, 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 no. Yeah, the other one, yeah. He's, we have yeah. this Mylar alternative that we yeah. wouldn't, and I think wouldn't it was, have. I think it was in his New York Times obituary. They made uh, uh, obituary. They made a joke about um, like how many animal lives he saved because we don't have to, yeah. you know, 
kill animals for drums. Well, well, and those of you young folks who don't like have never had to struggle with calf heads. And I know like my students here, we have calf heads on all the bass drums and it, it works like the weather here just allows for it. You just can do it. But like, like, you know, they get soggy sometimes, but you don't have to treat them like you don't have to spray them. We don't have to use sponges in the, the bass drums for like they do not pop off. I mean, you just have no idea how hard calfskin heads can can be you know i will like, say i i have heard and i i don't have any personal experience but it makes sense that obviously like the larger the head the more it's going to be affected by weather so i know a lot of people will use uh calf like orchestral players will use calf snare heads uh in particular oh, yeah. because that's that doesn't seem like that would be that big of a deal to tune it up it's not like a timpani head where it's like, this huge head that's super finicky and you're always dealing with pitch they get um, really tight though like they can yeah. get if it if they get dry they can just get like crazy popcorn snare drum tight um but man you have to take yeah. them down every time you play them you have to take them down and bring them back up yeah yeah, yeah. i mean and yeah. I, synthetic kong heads are like that too i mean or excuse yeah. me skin kong heads are like that too not that i'm a oh, okay. an expert kongero but uh and yeah when you said when you said these include like this kind of animal that kind of animal and captured enemies i imagine the enemies were like still alive because they're kind of captured and, they're, <laughs> and I, that that was by the way like. an abbreviated list uh that was not all of them but yeah i was i was totally creeped out by the it was actually elephant ears and uh carly in the in the chat was like bats like yes they actually use bats for i guess uh -huh. Small very drums. small drums. Doesn't seem very practical. <laughs> yeah, they it's in the Blades drums. book, Bill. <laughs> um, one one interesting little anecdote before we uh, before we move away from this, I just wanted to share in my like 30, 40 pages of James Blades reading, I found one joke and I thought it was actually pretty funny. So I wanted to share. James Blades was talking about how all we have to go on is these artistic representations. Uh, and he says, you know, basically that no artist was concerned with some future musicologist trying to dissect what drums looked like. Um, but he said that we're probably better off than a 24 AD musicologist trying to figure out what 20th century guitars looked like looking at Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> For the British, that's a pretty good joke. Yeah. Then <laughs> we got to get this guy on the podcast. Can you make that happen? I, I believe he's no longer with us. He might be a drumhead somewhere, actually. No, I think he's. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. I think he's no longer with us. Yeah. Awful. Wow. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. Well, um, we did have one Facebook question from Catherine Fortunato, um, who is a, a local Miami person. Um, and she, most of this has already been covered, but she was asking about the compositional process for the solos. And um, here's, the, here's the big question, Joe, you can't answer. What have you been working on since the pandemic? And if, if so, has the assumed abundance of time on your hands resulted from, resulting from COVID affected your compositional process? Um, I'm, I'm working on a revision of some original solos that I wrote quite a while ago that are going to come out in about a month. And I'm working on um, two short multi-percussion recital pieces that incorporate French rudiments using all four limbs, which would probably be more like October, I think, by the time I figure that one out. Um, I don't think the pandemic has really affected my compositional process necessarily. Um, it's affected my practice routine a little bit. Um, I have more time now to practice, but 
it hasn't necessarily resulted in a, like an outpouring of new compositions or anything like that. I know Catherine, she's great. Actually, she's taken a few lessons with me in New York, but um, yeah, so it, it, I would say um, it's more or less just my general routines that have been affected by the pandemic, you know, daily practicing. I luckily have more time now, so. One of the silver linings. Yeah, we gotta look for them. <laughs> but they're there. Yeah. Um, you know, one one other thing, we, we we focus so much on snare drum, and we love these pieces, and you're writing, Joe, and you're playing, too, of course, um, but we kind of glossed over the fact that you have played with the New York Phil and the Met and New York City Ballet, and it seems like pretty much every important group in New York and some other places, too. Um, what have been some of your performance highlights with these groups? Oh, I mean, there have been a lot of great moments. I, I remember... Uh, you know, I remember the day we, before we went out from the pan, for the pandemic, uh, we were playing Petrushka and, you know, it, was, it wasn't necessarily a performance highlight. It was just a feeling that everybody was on stage. We were rehearsing with Valerie Gergiev and, and there was the sense, uh, it was an open rehearsal. So there were a lot of New Yorkers in the, in the audience. It looked like a concert because I think people were realizing that, you know, you might not see live music for a little while. I'll remember that for, for quite a while. I think, um, you know, in terms of highlights over the years, I mean, great performances, Electra with Lauren Mazel with no score. I mean, he did the entire opera without a score. Wow. I thought that was impressive on his part. <laughs> <laughs> um, any Mahler with Franz Velser most in the Cleveland Orchestra, um, Mahler two, Mahler six, just unbelievable. Gustavo Dudamel, Prokofiev Five, just really great moments uh, where these, it just, you had kind of had to ever have everybody on the same page. And, you know, part of that is having the right conductor, but you also have to have the right mood in the, in the orchestra. So those were some great moments, but, you know, I, I really miss the, the communication. I think I'm sure we all do. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I think that's, it's hard to, um, capture that and describe it to somebody who's not a musician, but the sense of energy that you have when you're performing and there's somebody on your right and your left, and you're just going to do that together. So I'm really looking forward to getting that back. Um, when you mentioned all those examples, I literally had, I, I teared up because you mentioned all of our like oh my god if I had another lifetime a bucket list of things that what I'd like to do um but tell us please how do you and this is only between us but how do you follow Gergiev when he conducts it's only between us on <laughs> only between us. speaking to the mic <laughs> you're not the first one to ask that question um in fact, I've heard that asked of him in rehearsals. Uh, I remember Phil Smith, who is one of the best trumpet players I've ever heard in my life. So I'll just say it. Uh, he, in a rehearsal, he said, uh, Maestro, if you do that, we will never be able to play together. <laughs> and and Gergiev was like, well, I, you know, and then he kind of just mumbled something and then he just went on. And I think the motion he was doing was something like that. You know, like where his pinky was moving and the entire brass section was supposed to come in together. And um, somehow they figured out a way around it, you know, like, but he actually asked that question in a rehearsal. Oh, my God. 
god! And he 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 just he didn't even answer it. He just kind of went on. I mean, he's very. It's it's he's a very um, it depends on the repertoire, but he's a very good musician in the sense that he knows what he wants. He just has a really unorthodox style of delivering, you know, and conducting. So, I think uh, depends on the orchestra and how much time they spend with him. You know how they can figure it out. I mean, like what yeah. you just said, it sounds like what I mean. Ozawa and Bernstein also people you know talking about how ridiculous Ozawa looks up there, and it's like yeah, but. He, he knows what he wants, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you develop that sense with the ensemble. They're like, oh, yeah, he just winked or he moved his, you know, whatever, or she moved her right arm, and that's like, we know what they want, right? Because we've spent nine years figuring out what the heck they're doing, you know? I think it's, uh, I still think he is the god of, of what the hell is going on. And I've never heard an ensemble fall apart. I mean, I've, I've watched him conduct the Rite of Spring, and... I, I'm looking at him and it seems like he's speaking a foreign language, but the ensemble sounds fantastic. And I wonder if it has something to do with like, okay, we got to be together. We're going to gel oh, yeah. like crazy because oh, we yeah. don't know if we can just all tune into him. I, I think he deliberately does certain things that create an energy of, uh, I would say, like partial panic. <laughs> so that, you know, you you will get a different result when you're, in that mode than if you're like, oh, I, I, I'm comfortable. I know exactly what's going on, you know. Yeah. Hopefully it doesn't fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like a good case study in what a conductor does. Like, do they beat time for you or do they interpret and do they show like, hey, this moment of the piece is supposed to be, you know, this small apex of these two sections and this is like the form and the emotion. You know what I mean? It's 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 a... I don't know. Like, I feel like we've been in that debate with students before. Like, well, what's your conductor's what's your conductor's job? You know, I think it's more than keeping time for y'all. You know, right? Exactly. And I think the conductors would all give you different answers about what they think their job is. You know, right? And they, yeah. so they interpret it differently. And yeah, yeah, of course. This makes me think. There's one conductor that I've worked with quite a bit down here that um, I've heard of his conducting style said he paints very pretty pictures, but sometimes we don't know when to come in. <laughs> There's all kinds of gestures. And, and ultimately, like, that's when we have to rely on the kind of trust and chamber skills and, and all of those important things. But um, imagine the kind of trust the conductor must have to, to say, I'm going to do this and you're going to know exactly when to come in. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's well, see, had, do you have something? Yeah, I had a question, uh, sort of going back a bit, we were talking about COVID, and uh, I, we're now getting to the point in the States where uh, it seems like if we are smart enough and careful enough about doing things, we can, at the very least, begin to make music together in, in terms of maybe like a live cast chamber concert. Uh, and the example I've cited a couple times on the podcast is I know Houston Symphony is doing wonderful things with that. Um, I was wondering, both personally for you and just in general, the New York scene, how, how, is there a reopening of music in at least a small sense, or do you feel like it's still, we're still waiting and, you know, trying to be safe as long as we can? My impression is right now, I actually am in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, because we have a place out here. So we've been here for the most part, but my impression is the New York scene is not open at all. I mean, there's nothing. Part of that is because every governor is treating it differently and applying different regulations. And Cuomo's been pretty um, strict. 
because of what happened in March and April. Um, I, I did just play the Reich Mallet Quartet in Cleveland uh, and we did a live cast or not a live cast, but we did a, a stream um, and we, we recorded it socially distanced, which you can do with that piece. And we masked up and we, you know, um, is that going to be put online anywhere anytime soon? It already broadcast and it was a one-time only broadcast oh, through uh, the Sun Valley Summer Festival, <clears throat> um, Sun Valley Music Festival. They put a lot into it. We had a video crew and an audio crew and it felt great. That was in July. It was the first time I had played music with anybody since March. And um, Ohio just had a, you know, they just have a different uh, sense of it. So they were, we were able to do that at CIM and um I think every state is treating it differently right now. I think New York, you would not be able to do it. Even chamber music, you know, I mean, we're hearing about people like in the Met, you know, filing for unemployment. Um, I mean, do you get, do you get any sense from your buddies there that um, I don't know any news that stuff is going to turn around or it, like, do you have an update? You know, you're, you're so connected there. Um, it's really, really hard. I can tell you that much. I mean, um, not only the Met, but you know, I'm thinking of Broadway musicians that basically March 13th was their last kind of paycheck. Um, I, I'm just keeping my eye on January 1st, the large entities, uh, Lincoln center, Carnegie hall, you know, all of the, the major constituents, I think they've been communicating with the mayor's office and everybody's obviously waiting for the vaccine, but I think those large institutions have set January 1st as a date where they're going to um, reevaluate like ways forward. And there was recently, even today, I saw this German study. I don't know if you've seen it about um, performances in, uh, in large spaces. And they, they conducted a very formal study that, that, where they, um, they filled a hall with... Um, scientists and doctors and they were all spaced and they did different configurations trying to figure out well what could work for live music um i think that if we come to january 1st this is my hypothetical personal opinion with no scientific basis if we don't have a vaccine by january 1st i feel like these institutions are going to be looking for other ways to go on with the show one way or another so you might have 25% capacity in um, Avery, in uh, David Geffen Hall or um, maybe just um, finding other venues that have where you can socially distance. I mean, Broadway, I think, um, will not open until they know that they're going to generate a profit. So 25% capacity is not going to do it, Yeah, you know. But the motiv motivations are slightly different in those different genres. So um, that's just my guess. And I'm really hopeful, you know, that if we can get a medical solution, then it'll solve all of these problems and we can just uh, distribute the vaccine and move on, you know, but um, yeah. that's in a perfect world. Is, is Rutgers having in class uh, classes, in, in person classes? Completely online. Oh, lucky. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, we've been uh, meeting all summer. Um, just we've had master classes in June, July, and August with the percussion studio to just try to gather some kind of sense of momentum and um, resuming. And uh, so, you know. with with being online, did you send instruments home with students? Because I mean, for keyboard and timpani in particular, that's that's such a hurdle with with doing percussion online. We didn't do it over the summer. Um, 
the interesting thing is the plan right now is to open the practice facilities. And in order to do that, we came up with a cleaning protocol that we kind of based on the PAS. I don't know if you saw the article, UV lights, UV wands, Lysol disinfectant, and a protocol between practice sessions where, you know, like there'll be a 30 minute UV light break. Um, and we have a number of practice rooms. The other thing is that, um, as far as I know, the school is only open for percussionists and pianists. So you're not going to be bumping into a lot of people. Um, so the students will, fingers crossed, be in those rooms zooming to us from, from those instruments. And then we have to, faculty have to figure out our own situation, you know. Right. <laughs> well, at least the building's open. It's been amazing for me to see how not just different schools in different parts of the country, but you know, even the different schools that I teach at are handling, you know, some, some places the studio is open, students have access to instruments, but classes are online, um, and others like everything's closed, there's very limited access. Um, but it, know, it's- Yeah, UNC Greenboro lasted a week. I'm, right. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking we can beat them. I'm thinking we can do five days here. Like we, party, we party harder than anybody. You should see this place. Are, are, you, a, are you a James Madison? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, my whole family's from Virginia, so I drive by there. My Roanoke, everybody's uh -huh. from Roanoke. So. You always, you drive through, go to like a student kegger, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good pit stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I turned down a couple faculty keggers already. So just, <laughs> that's what this place is. Like, guys, I just don't think that's responsible. It's like, no, come on, it's the, it's the third faculty. Chug, <laughs> chug, chug, chug. It's the third faculty kegger, come on. Putting, we're putting this one in Casey's tenure file. <laughs> yeah, hey, I'm, go I'm going up. I'm almost complete. I've almost got it all put together. Finally. <laughs> if they make it this deep into the episode, then <laughs> I know <laughs> there's a little there's a little nugget at the end of episode 240, whatever this was. Two. If they made it past bat skins, then I think they're ready for this. <laughs> right. If they got past the uh, yeah enemy skins being used as drums, then. <laughs> Well, before this goes further down the rabbit hole, um, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. It's wonderful to, to see you and speak with you, and thanks for sharing so much with us. And, You're welcome. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Bye, everybody. Okay. Thanks a lot. See you guys. Thanks.